There are a whole host of um, questions, uh, books, uh, epistles, uh, <laughs> statements, and um, everything in between uh, written here. Uh, some of them um, honing in on things that have been spoken about, some of them um, maybe questions that people have come to New Horizon with. Uh, so I'm going to pick the bones uh, the best that I can out of these. I'm going to apologize in advance because I am most likely going to offend the greater number of you because we have a short window of time. There are multiple questions here and uh, we're not going to hit them all, but we'll do my best to get a flavor of them all. Um, there's, a, there's a question here which I think is a lovely way to start to get to uh, know our, our three panelists as, as people. First and foremost, it allows them a window into that, which is uh, effectively, if I can uh, find it, yeah, when did you know when to stop something and move to something different, i.e. Christian work or job? And uh, you've all been on your own journeys in life, and so it might even be a useful way to just sort of say, you know, when were the, how did you discern when to make moves and shifts in gear? either within perceived Christian ministry or out of roles that aren't perceived to be Christian ministry. You might want to take issue with that and into Christian ministry. So you could maybe just introduce how you discerned your way through that as well. Uh, I'm going to stand up so I can see half of you. Um, in terms of discerning when to stop something, I think we may exercise that discernment during some of the questions that, that come our way this afternoon. Um, I know for me that... Um, I, I changed role about two and a bit years ago. I'd been in local church ministry for, for about 15 years, now working full-time for uh, the Zacharias Trust. And when I began to work for a local church, I, I thought, I'm never going to ever, ever going to do anything other than this. Love the local church. But I, I sensed that I could be more useful to the kingdom by changing role. And... Um, I think that for me has been one of the, the ways I've tried to discern what to do and whether to change jobs and locations is, is if I've had a clear sense that actually I can be of more service to God's people doing this thing rather than that thing, then that seems to me a, a good reason to, to, change, to change tack. And that, I think that sense comes both from a, an inner conviction and burden, but also just from the wisdom of other people who are a bit more objective and who can be a bit more objective about your own gifts and strengths and weaknesses and that kind of thing as well. Okay, <coughs> um, Ken Clark or Fanta. Um, <coughs> for me, over uh, many years, I think, uh, Barry, the things that have helped me most in discerning God's call and if God wants you to move and change would be uh, Colossians chapter 3 actually has meant a lot to me with a couple of principles there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts uh, or rule in your hearts. And um, <clears throat> that kind of objective and subjective dimension of guidance has been a great help to me. Um, for example, a key passage for me for many years was I must go and preach the gospel in other cities, towns, villages, those words of Jesus and that this was part of God's calling in my life. So really asking God to guide me through the reading of scripture, uh, praying about it. <clears throat> uh, one of the things that has been massively important for me on major decisions in my life has been listening to the advice and the wisdom of friends I trust who know me and love me. Because I have found 
it difficult sometimes to see what my gifts are, but my friends can see very clearly the strengths, the weaknesses, the gifts, etc. And the book of Proverbs is just full of common sense and so much good advice. And, you know, one of the themes in Proverbs is about listening to the advice and counsel of friends. So that has been hugely important for me. Um, I think I'd want to say this too. Sometimes it is agonizingly painful trying to discern what the will of the Lord is, especially when two courses of action seem right. You know, it's dead easy if one is clearly wrong and the other is right. <laughs> There's, there isn't an issue there. But when two options seem right and listening to Christian leaders over the years in my experience and I've had this experience many of us have had the experience of really believing a particular course of action has been right and it's what God is calling us to and it doesn't happen and maybe it I mean I remember one former speaker here at New Horizon Gordon MacDonald uh, sharing with a group of leaders one time about this and he said it took me nearly three years to work through how I could have got that so wrong, seeking to discern what God's call was on a particular appointment to uh, a big Christian mission in uh, the United States. So <clears throat> I remember when we were in a small church on the south side of Dublin for four and a half years and we got a call to Coleraine. And uh, I lost half a stone in weight over a matter of a few weeks recommend it for dieting trying to seek the will of the Lord but it was just the, the decision was such a massively important one not just for me but for the family that it was agonizingly difficult but then you know my wife who's far wiser, wiser than I often says God's guidance is often best understood through the rear view mirror <laughs> and hindsight often then we can look back and we can see the Lord actually was in that and was guiding us. So those are just a few things that I trust will be helpful. If you're at a kind of crossroads and seeking to discern if God's wanting you to move on or stay where you are or a change of direction. Uh, hi, Rick, can you hear me up there? Great. Um, yeah, that's a, a great question. I wish I knew the answer. I can only really talk about my own experience. Um, it, it varies from time to time. We used to run a Christian university program called Rock Garden. It was going really well and uh, one night as we were worshipping I just felt like the Lord said that's it, it's done, it needs to finish in the next couple of weeks and that was the right thing to do. Uh, moving to Australia it had more to do with just sensing a shift, place where I was at was changing, uh, then an opportunity opened up somewhere else, we prayed about that, of course talking to friends, so it's a whole range of things. So I'm not much help but that's about the best I can do. Stay on your feet, Rick. Stay on your feet. So, um, you've been uh, at, uh, <laughs> you, you've, especially this morning, I guess, a lot of questions coming up by this morning, um, and, and I'm struck by at the beginning of the week uh, about the, the, the tension between trying to understand the Trinity, but uh, that it is absolutely essential, and the, this, the tension in that. But a lot of people just saying, all right, Yahweh, Jesus, wonderful. But is Jesus not the Messiah then? What's the relationship between Yahweh and Jesus and the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? Yeah. What did Israel think the Messiah should be? And so there's a load of people around here who have uh, been walking around thinking that Jesus is the Messiah for the greater proportion of their lives. And they're now wondering, help. 
and, and no one has quite put it like that, but that's what I believe is coming through. And, and I will give these to Rick, and he will take them away and meditate them on them before his final session in the morning. But for now, he's only got a couple of minutes. Well, first of all, you're right. Jesus is the Messiah. There's no question. Yay! <laughs> um, I'm really sorry for not making that clearer. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, that's the thing about people like me think we're clear and we're only clear to ourselves and nobody else. So, yes, he is the Messiah. Simply what I'm trying to front end that with is before he's the Messiah, he's Yahweh. That's what enables him to be the Messiah, right? Every human attempt to be the Messiah failed. So nowhere in Jewish tradition do they expect the Messiah to be anything but a human being. If you go back, I mean, who's the Messiah modelled on David? David does not do mighty deeds. He doesn't do that. So they're just looking for a human king who will rule over God's people. That's all they're looking for. Where we've got a bit confused is because Jesus is the Messiah and he's God. We think, oh, the Messiah has to be divine, which is not really Christian language anyway. Now, he was never meant to be God among us, not at all. So, yes, he is the Messiah. Um, one way of talking about the Messiah is son of God. So, yes, he's the son of God. That's what the voice from heaven's talking about. This is my beloved son. I think I had that twice on the screen this morning. A lot of stuff coming on, I know. So he's all of those things. I just don't want it to miss. But before all of that, God is coming and doing that for us because no human being was able to live up to what was required of being a true servant of Israel. True servant of Israel, I should say. Or true messianic son. Does that help a little bit? It does. I mean, I wonder if you could just build on that because, again, I think, no, no, I know. I think it's uh, because in another vein in this, there is. Oh, the, the Christ is the, the Messiah. You know that, don't you? You know Christ equals Messiah? Yes. Got that? Good. Okay, great. The father son language, yeah. the use of Yahweh for father, but also where does the role of the son come in to this in relationship to the father? Okay, um, I'm going to have to come up with a little diagram for you tomorrow. Um, so let me try and keep this brief. The reason I started in Genesis was to make sure we started in the right place. And remember that? It's not between spiritual and earthly or heavenly or something rather. The fundamental division is creator and creation. You've got to start there, right? Now, there's only one creator, so Israel does not have a category called divine. That's why I'm not going to use the language and say, Jesus is divine. That's mixing worldviews. You're either Yahweh Elohim or you're not. Okay? So in that context, we talked about Elohim revealing himself as Yahweh. That's God language. But whenever God speaks as Yahweh or Elohim to his creation, that's the son language. Right? So actually, the first person to use the word son of a human being is Yahweh. It's not God. Yahweh calls Israel my son. And then David is the son. So... What I'm trying to say is Jesus actually brings both of those together because he's God among us, he's Yahweh, but he's also living out Israel's call, he's the messianic king, and that's where the sun language comes in. Got that? So they're both operating, but they're in two different categories. One's to do with God speaking about himself, and the other is how God speaks to his creation. And okay? And the thing that no one would ever put those together if it wasn't for Jesus. He's the cause of the problem. Because he does both. Is that? Yeah. That, that kind of seems blindingly clear to me, but I could be a complete idiot. I know that. So. <laughs> I think I need to sit down. <laughs> you got to remember that you were an aerospace engineer, isn't that right? So that means that technically you are a rocket scientist. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but uh, listen, it, it, you know what? I'm I'm really blessed by your insights. Actually, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. and your passion for Jesus. Um, there were uh, and and uh, come back tomorrow morning, folks. Bible teaching between ten and eleven a.m. CDs available for download. Uh, Sam, um, two couple of variations on a theme here. Uh, when last night you were speaking into the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the use of abandonment language, and uh, I mean, folks, we, we got to recognise we're talking about deep stuff here when we're talking about the Trinity and we're talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son in specific moments in Scripture. But people are asking um, uh, to, if you want to expound on that further, the idea of the separation between God the Father and God the Son. And was Jesus truly forsaken in that moment or in, in, in Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted, um, it, it seems to say the Lord will not hide his face, not hide his face from him. The Lord has not despised him. And so the reconciliation of that, of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God forsake the Son? Did he hide his face? And again, folks, I'm going to, you know, feel free to, to, to come in and add your own flavor and insight um, to this as well. Because we're not just dealing with theoretical things here. And we're dealing with pastoral and how we relate to God and where is God in the midst of our pain. So. No, thank you for that. And I'll, I'll share some thoughts on that and, and I hope Rick will correct me. Um, <laughs> I'm an idiot. Yeah, yeah. You're a bishop. You don't, you don't know about these things. Um, um, so w when we're talking about what Jesus experienced on the cross, as, as we were thinking last night, we, we're on holy ground, we're on mysterious ground, so we're not gonna, we shouldn't expect to get this entirely pinned down and cleared off and, and you know, all neat and tidy. Um, however, we are told certain things, and we need to, I think it's one of those areas where we, we want to be as careful as we can be to say as much as the Bible does no less and no more than that. So Jesus experienced forsakenness from the Father. Okay, that, that was real. Uh, that is not to say that, that Jesus was, was booted out of the Trinity. Um, it's not like when Robbie Williams left to take that and then came back again. Uh, it's not that kind of thing that, that's going on. But nevertheless, there was something that Jesus experienced that I take it he had never experienced before. And that was an, an, an absence of the loving presence of his father. Um, that was real. He didn't just appear to be forsaken. He, he experienced it. Um, we know he wasn't abandoned ultimately because the father raised him and exalted him to the highest place. But we mustn't then think, oh, well, it was only just a, a kind of a, a temporary glitch or something and therefore doesn't really matter. To, to be forsaken by the Eternal Father in any way would have been, I take it, infinite suffering for the Son. So we, we, are, we want to be, tread very carefully and very humbly uh, around this whole issue. So it's not that Jesus was, was pushed out of the Trinity. The Trinity were actually united in the project of Christ dying for us. 
Uh, we know that was the Father's will. We know that was the Son's will. Uh, sometimes people say, what was, the, what was the Spirit up to during this time? Was he sort of just stepping back and letting them get on with it? No, we, we know from, from the book of Hebrews that it was by the Spirit that Jesus offered his life. And of course, the other thing we, we know the Spirit was doing was opening the eyes of the, the Roman centurion. So this is, this is something that, that God the Trinity was united in accomplishing. So the Father and the Son were united in the Son being forsaken by the Father. Uh, both persons were, were willing to go through that for our sake. So we see the unity of the Trinity there, even where we see the experience of, of forsakenness being experienced by the Son. Learned friends, anything to add, correct, yeah, subtract, I think stone? To, you know, whatever, the, whatever the deep dynamics of it, I think we're in incredibly holy ground here. Um, I don't know if anybody here has ever had the experience of being abandoned. I know some people who have. I know some who have been were abandoned at birth, and the pain of that has lived with them for the rest of their life. And I think one of the things that certainly I do understand about what was happening on the cross at that point was the son felt the father, the, the forsakenness, the utter desolate abandonment. And as I say, whatever the deep dynamics of that, I think we need to understand that what meant everything to Jesus the Son was this relationship with his father. I mean, even as a young boy in the temple, he talked about he had to be about his father's business. Later he said, I always do what pleases my father. That relationship was holy, it was profound, it was divine. And at the cross, something happened so that Jesus the Son felt utterly utterly abandoned and in, in one way what makes it even more meaningful for me is why he did it that he did it so that you and I don't have to be abandoned and I mean hell is utter abandonment there is nothing worse than that so to me of all the words that Jesus spoke from the cross it's possible to argue these are the deepest and the most poignant and profound for you and I as sinful people that Jesus was willing to go through that father willing to go through that for us it, it is quite incredible I mean we are on holy ground here and I think we're very much at the heart of what the gospel is all about and what salvation is all about what the cross is all about I mean why do we glamorize the cross there's nothing glamorous about the cross of Jesus um, and Really, with thanksgiving, humble thanksgiving and gratitude, I just want to say thank you, God. Well, um, yes to all of that. Uh, I think I'd say just add a couple of little things if I could, though. Uh, it's important to remember that Jesus doesn't stop being Lord just because he's on the cross. So uh, sometimes what happens is people will just focus on the father-son relationship. And then what they're focusing on is the three person, but that's always a danger. You do that to exclusion of the unity. So I think it, it's, it's proper to say that it's also God on the cross. And uh, you see this early on in Mark where um, Jesus asked the disciples, whom do you say that I am? 
And Peter responds and gets the gold star, you're the Messiah, right? And so he's probably feeling a bit chuffed about that, looking around the group, I got that one right, okay? And, uh, and then Jesus goes on to say, what? And notice he doesn't say, and the Messiah must suffer. He says, the Son of Man must suffer. And that's striking because Son of Man has only occurred twice previously in Mark and both are to do with Jesus exercising Yahweh's sole prerogatives, forgiving sins and being Lord of the Sabbath. If you haven't seen that word for nearly seven or eight chapters or seven, maybe six, and he brings it up again. So I think what he's saying to Peter, it's not just the Messiah who dies. This is the one who exercises Yahweh's sole prerogatives. And that's why I think John picks up on this in the blood and water that comes out of Jesus' side. That's going back to that Yahweh standing on the rock, whack me and see what happens. So I think you've got to hold those two things together, right? It's not the worst case of child abuse in cosmic history. Before Jesus is Messiah, he's also Yahweh among us. So it's actually Yahweh on the cross. There's something profoundly unusual going on, right? The other thing to notice is that when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you noticed what the people around the foot of the cross say? Right? What do they say? Exactly, right? Now, why would they say that? Why would they say, oh, he's calling for Elijah? Well, we heard about Elijah this morning. But in Jewish tradition, Elijah precedes the coming of Yahweh. And Elijah is the one who rescues the righteous. So that's interesting because when those Jewish listeners hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They hear that as a cry of asking God to vindicate him. They don't hear that as Jesus saying, I'm wicked. I'm built, you know, born down with sin. That's not what they're hearing. They're hearing the cry of a righteous man who's calling for God's vindication. And that's got to be part of that equation too. So I don't want to say, I want to say yes to everything we've heard. But, you know, if you're going to be Trinitarians, truly Christian Trinitarians, you've got to keep the other side together with this. The only other point I think I'd add here is um, this, I presented a paper at St. Andrews, why did I say it? that, doesn't matter. But, um, <clears throat> I don't think Satan is in, at all involved on the cross. I think he's already been defeated. What happens on the cross is solely between Yahweh and his people. And if you think about all the sacrifices that are offered, they're never to do with paying Satan off. God redeems Israel from Egypt, but he never pays Pharaoh anything. He redeems Israel from Babylon. He never pays anybody anything, right? So there's something going on in that act of sacrifice and redemption that's purely between God and his people, doesn't involve Satan at all. And I think that's why I want to underline this is an incredibly holy moment. This is God expressing his profound love for his people as Yahweh, taking upon himself that sense of profound abandonment that his people might know life. It, it's just a stunning combination of all of those things. Thank you. Grant, thank you. Thank you, Rick. Um, you know, you, you, we've been speaking from Scripture. We've been speaking about Scripture. And, uh, you know, the... I mean, I think back for those who were in Sunday night whenever Keith Getty was talking about how we sing what we believe in. And, he, you know, he was saying he really feels the need that people everywhere, but here in Northern Ireland as well, we need to really go deeper in our understanding of Christian life and broaden our minds. But uh, people have been struck, um, and rightly, uh, and, 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 and I'm glad, actually, because it's, 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 I would say it's part of what we wanted. And they've been struck by the varying ways in which speakers have used the Bible as the basis for their talks. 
Um, some have woven it into stories. Others have taken a passage and expounded it. Others have taken biblical theology and given us a, an overarching um, uh, theme. So there's a question here about how would you uh, how would you explain how the Bible should be used in churches in order for them to be truly biblical. And I guess running alongside that, there's a concern here at times that uh, so many organizes small group and Bible studies, I'm used to seeing the life of the Word of God and the life dwelling in the group as the Lord transforms lives. And sometimes life gets killed by people who want to dissect the text into neat commandments. How do you keep the life of God's Word? And then it says, as you do so well. So I'm not sure who they're talking about, but I think they've all done it well. So there's a question about how do we use the Bible so the churches can have confidence that they're being <laughs> biblical? You know, everybody's fighting Fanta. Someone who's preached from the Bible in churches over many years. Well, I think one of the things that's hugely important to remember is that the purpose of the Bible is that we get to know the author. Uh, we are not uh, into bibliolatry. Um, I remember when I was a student in Dublin, I had been using a Bible that had belonged to my dad. For, my dad had died when I was young. And when I was 13, I found in a wardrobe in our house in Hollywood a Bible that was my dad's. And it really meant a lot. And I used it every day for years. And then the pages were falling out of it and the back was falling off it. And I said to an elderly man in Dublin, isn't it amazing how you can get so attached to a Bible? And he said to me, yeah, Fanta, that's right. But always remember, it's far more important to be attached to the author. And I think that is so, so important. You know, I mean, Jesus talked about... We know the scriptures in order to know him. You know, it's about deepening a relationship with God, finding out about him. Um, I think there are different ways in which the Bible can be used for preaching, for studying, for Bible study. Personally, in my own devotional life, I try to change every few years my own structure, if you like, for personal devotions because there are different ways of reading the Bible. Sometimes you just want to read it right through the whole way. Um, sometimes you want to take a book and concentrate. Sometimes you want to take themes. At the moment, uh, I'm using, and it appeals to my Balamina blood because it's free. It's, a, it's an app that you can download onto your phone called Bible in One Year by Nicky Gumbel and you get three Bible readings per day with a short commentary on each and you go through the whole Bible in a year and I'm find it, finding it incredibly helpful but I think there are always certain principles that will apply whatever, um, whatever our approach to studying the Bible and teaching it and preaching it and uh, I mean, they're pretty classic, really. There's observation, there's interpretation, and there's application. Uh, in other words, the first thing we want to do is actually read it. Um, there's a lovely story about a pastor visiting an elderly lady in his church, and they were talking about Bible reading because she read her Bible every day. And he said to her, Do you ever use a commentary? What's that, pastor? So he explained what a, pa a commentary was and he, he lent her one and after a couple of weeks called in to see her to see how she was getting on and how you find in the commentary, dear. Oh, it's not bad, but the Bible sure throws a lot of light on it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that dear old lady got it the right way round. The commentary is not the Bible. Uh, we want to get in to the scriptures, dig into them, observe, read the same passage over and over. Um, you know, read a book over and over. Let's see what it says. And if you're like me, the more often you read it, the more often you see stuff that's there. Uh, because we're not good observers. 
And then interpretation, you know, not just what does it say, observation, interpretation, what does it mean? What is the original writer talking about here? And let's remember, culturally, in many instances, we are solar systems away from the culture of some of the biblical writers. And there's lots of authors in the Bible. There's one overall author, but lots of different authors, different styles of writing. Um, so, you know, what does it mean? What did it mean to those who originally heard it, were writing it, and so on? And then the final, of course, is application. I mean, it's useless if we're not going to live it out, if we're not going to obey it. And uh, I think there's a danger, there's a big danger, and you see it happening too often. And this was something I was warned about when I was a Christian teenager. It's a little poem. Wonderful things in the Bible I see, some of them put there by you and by me. You know, that's not, we're not into revisionism. We want to hear what God is actually saying through his word. Uh, see it? What does it mean? And how do we apply it and work it out so that we follow the advice of James? We're not just hearers of the word, readers of the word, but doers living it out. I'm going to throw this because there have been different styles of speaking and using scriptures and relying on the scriptures. Um, do you want to comment any further? No, no, good. No, I was, I was, I was saying I'm throwing, I'm throwing it out because we've had different models of how the scriptures have been used. I mean, Rick and Sam have had the scriptures in front of them. You both came at Mark from different angles and different ways. You did biblical theology this morning. You've been doing biblical exposition. Um, have you observations or comments on how the church can do this wisely? Is there a right way to do it? Yeah, my way. <laughs> um, I always say if there's a difference between me and someone else, they're, they're serving God in their way, I'm serving God in his way. That's the, that's the way of thinking about it. Um, I'd absolutely echo everything Fanta, I'm going to start calling you Fanta, has said. Um, I think that there are, there are different ways of, of ministering the word of God. Um, some of us will have our kind of pet favorites and with with any of them there are ways we can do it bless you uh any there are ways we can be doing it in a way that is not life transforming and we whatever we do we can get into a rut doing it so i think it's good within the, the local church we we know that we need to be getting our heads into scripture as a church family um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of expository teaching i think it keeps preachers honest there are certain passages i've preached in the local church that I never would have preached were it not for the fact that the previous week I'd done the bit before and the next week I'm doing the bit after. There are certain passages I would just avoid otherwise. So I think it keeps us honest and it, it helps us to make sure we are, we are teaching the whole counsel of God and not just our hobby horses. That said, I think it's good to vary the diet as well. I think it is good to have topical preaching from time to time that shows how themes develop and progress in scripture teaching that shows us how to join up different theological truths and, and think them through together it's good to have preaching that models how to approach contemporary issues from a, from a Christian worldview so I think um, we, we need to vary the dark we need to we mustn't think as long as we're doing this model we, we that must mean we're doing it right we can do any of these models badly and just because someone does exposition badly is not a reason to ditch exposition. So we need to, to make sure that, um, that the verse that haunts me the most is 
uh, when Jesus says, I think it's in John 5, he says, you, you diligently study the scriptures. And we think, great, that's good. Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. And thinking, that sounds great. And he says, yeah, but you refuse to come to me. So whatever we're doing, we, we must be coming to Christ and cherishing him through his words, sitting under his words, not above them. And I can't remember who said this, but they said that some, some preachers use the Bible like a drunk uses a lamppost. Not for illumination, but for support. And we've got to make sure, actually, it is, it is Scripture that is shaping us, and not us that is standing above Scripture. We're good? We're, we're good, we're good. Um, so, folks, we have... Uh, as we might have expected, um, given the sheer numbers that turned up for Sam's seminar yesterday, we have a, a range of questions about sexuality, human sexuality, the church, and so on. Uh, let me say a few things, um, because we're not going to cover them all, and we're going to move on to other things after we um, deal with the one or two that I, that I want to hone in on. One is, there have been back-to-back -back seminars. The audio of that is available. We have books and resources there. These questions will be useful for New Horizon leadership to take away and to think about future exploration of, of issues. It's clear that there's a lot of vexation and anxiety and questions and hopes and aspirations and all of that in the mix on the issue of human sexuality in front of us. Uh, if I might say, um, and uh, unfortunately, well, yeah, uh, you know, uh, I hope I'm not... Uh, offending the wrong people here. There's some questions that, to be honest with you, are explicitly too private. And uh, if we believe that we can ask that in this sort of public forum, it concerns me how people might deal with these issues in public forums. And so I would simply say that if you've asked something that is explicitly private, if you want to come and have a go at me afterwards um, or have a chat with me, maybe that would be better. Uh, but, um, but they're not going to get asked here because this isn't the right context. And there are right contexts for private and personal questions. The last thing to say is that, do you know what, sometimes what we can do in our community on this issue in particular is that we have guys like Sam or Vaughn or Ed Shaw or others and we think that they're the oracle of everything now. Whenever these are questions for all of us. And so as people involved in church leadership, as Christian thinkers and as people in pews and congregations, we all have to think. And we can't just throw it all onto a certain group of individuals and say, now solve all the problems for us. So the questions I ask and put into all of our panellists, and I'm really going to net them down to uh, a couple of core things. Um, we have questions that I think uh, are interesting about um, membership of churches. And uh, can a gay person be a member of a church? Uh, and uh, in similar veins, I, I think gay people would find it difficult to find a church that welcomes them. How can we persuade churches to be more open? And then contrastingly, uh, how do you deal with the growing wave of Christians who want things to be open, but they shouldn't be? So that's the vein of that particular question. The second set of questions is how do we deal with that in the public square? As Christians, should we? Uh, is it wrong, for instance, for political parties to block same-sex marriage? Should Christians seek to block same-sex marriage. There's a whole lot of other ethical questions about whether or not you or I should go to a same-sex marriage, about couples who adopt through surrogacy and so on. Those may be ethical questions for another day. But how do we deal with this issue within the church? Should we be more open, more accepting? Can someone be gay and be a member? 
and how should Christians engage in the public square? So I'm just going to put those broadly to our panellists, allow each of them to respond and maybe to pick up on the thing that they're most passionate about, or both, and then we're going to move on to the next set of questions. So, do you want to, do you want to start, Fanta? Well, Thank just you. To, just to start, start the conversation, I mean, I think... One of the things I'm passionate about is there's so much focus on sexuality, uh, identity uh, in our culture. But actually, for us as Christians and for everybody, sexuality isn't actually the issue. <laughs> you know, I think there's a whole cluster of issues that are behind that and underneath it. One is scripture that we've been talking about, how we view scripture, uh, what our view of authority is what we believe about revelation. Has God revealed something as to what his will is for human beings, or has he not? Uh, I mean, I remember years ago sitting, listening to Lady saying to me, um, uh, she, she'd been telling me she'd been having an affair. She was married. She was having an affair with a man who was married. And she sat and said to me, looking me straight in the eye, I have prayed about this and God has not said no. You know, like, what planet are we living on? The issue was not the affair. The issue was how she understands God speaks, what God's will is. And, uh, you know, God had already made clear what his will is on that issue. So what I'm saying is this, that I think uh, a lot of the questions that we're asking are symptoms of a much, much greater, bigger problem. Uh, what does it mean to own Jesus Christ as Lord, for example? Uh, how do we view commandments? How do we view God's word? Is it authority? How do we view authority? What is our authority nowadays? What is our plumb line? How do we discern what pleases and honors God? How do we discern what breaks God's heart? Uh, what is sin? All of these are, 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 are related to the, the theme of sexuality and every other theme that we come up with. So I think these are some of the issues actually that we need to be addressing and talk talk about because they directly affect what we believe and what our viewpoints are. I think the second thing I just want to say is this, John 1, Jesus was full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And if ever we needed uh, a beautiful divine blending of grace and truth, we need it in some of these more sensitive minefield issues today. And both are important. And we need to be churches that are marked by grace and marked by truth and the truth spoken in love and lived out in love. And uh, we need to understand, and then I'll sit down, that what Jesus said he meant, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. We'll do what he says. Okay. Um, I'm going to keep throwing that and we keep the conversation alive because you know what? There's quite a lot of people who echo all of that. But the next question for a lot of people is, well, what does that look like? How? How do we be people of grace and truth? Uh, for some people, um, patently, they think that the Christian church isn't open enough. For others, they think that it, it actually shouldn't become more open. But how do you do that in grace and truth? So uh, I'm firing it across uh, all of us. And uh, th then we'll come to the, well, how do we engage with the public square? Do you want to have a rattle, Sam? Rick? You're the man. Do you want to have some? Oh, maybe a um, no, thank you. Um, a couple of principles that we, we need to make sure we're applying. One is that we 
and I mentioned this a bit yesterday, that we need to be consistent whatever we're doing. So questions concerning membership. I, I can't tell you what the answer is because different churches do membership in different ways. Some don't do membership at all. So I can't say who should and shouldn't be a member of your church. I don't know what your church does by that or means by it. But what I will say is we need to be consistent. So um, if there are things that you're letting a, a cohabiting, unmarried, heterosexual couple do in church that you wouldn't let a gay couple do, I want to know why you're making that distinction. Uh, is that is that biblical consistency or is that actually homophobia? So that's one question. When people say there's a... Uh, one of the things that broke my heart at my own church a few years ago was one of the welcome team came up to me in a total panic just before one of the services and said, a gay couple has come to church, what do I do? And I was like, well, you call the police, I'll distract them. Um, you know, what do you mean, what do you do? I mean, seriously, what do you do when anyone walks into the church and you're on the welcome team? You welcome them for crying out loud. Tell them you are pleased to see them, hand them a service sheet, show them where the seats are and ask if you can be of any help. But for some reason people treat this issue as if it's a, an entirely separate species of, of human being. And we, we literally lose the plot over it. So we've got to have gospel consistency. If we make this our favourite sin to speak against, actually we are opening ourselves up to legitimate criticism from the world around us because they'll say, you seem very happy with heterosexual sin in your church but you're making a big fuss over this one. And it's very hard not to avoid the, the conclusion that's, that's motivated by something other than the Bible. So we, we must be consistent. Um, the other thing is we, we must be humble. Um, I've had a, a few people say to me in the, in the last couple of days, but it's an abomination. And Leviticus uses that language. We need to bear in mind the Bible uses that language of quite a wide range of sins. I don't think I hear that word being applied to any other ones. Uh, the same passage that talks about homosexuality being a sin says that greed is a sin. Can I suggest more people in Northern Ireland will be in hell because of greed than because of homosexuality? Do we teach with the same passion and conviction against greed as we do against homosexual sin? So we, we do need to be consistent and humble in how we handle this issue. And for those of us who feel a particular sense of either disgust about homosexual sin or unusual concern about it, can we make sure that's a godly concern? And my question is, are you more grieved by your own sin, whatever type of sin that is, than you are by this particular sin in other people? It seems to me that when it comes to the sins of others, we, we've, we're Puritans. When it comes to our own sins, we're liberals. So let's, let's make sure we're, we're honouring what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We're, we're attending the, the log in our own eye more than we're, we're attending what's going on in, in someone else's life. So when it comes to, to practical issues of what can this type of person do in our local church and what shouldn't they do and, and where do we draw the lines and how does that all work out in, in practice, the, the question is what do you normally do?
if there's someone who's in a, a sinful lifestyle and either hasn't got that far in their discipleship yet and realized that it's not right or they have done and they're just refusing to change, what do you normally do? Because 99 times out of 100, that would be the right thing to do in this instance as well. And in terms of churches open, not open, whatever it might be, we want to express the love of God for all, the, the call of Christ, the invitation of Christ on all people. And we want to make sure we are honoring the things that Jesus teaches in terms of his commands and his ethics. We're called to unconditional love. We're not called to unconditional affirmation. Some people will say to us, if you're not affirming someone, you're harming them. Um, that makes every parent I've ever come across abusive. Because if anyone knows about loving someone while because of your love for them, not affirming them, it's a parent, right? So, I think that's what I need to say about that. Any? That was great. No, what I might do, Rick, if you don't mind, is to, to pick up on the second strand of that. No, because I'm thinking that in Australia recently they had a referendum yeah. to legalise same-sex marriage. In the south of Ireland they held a referendum to legalise same-sex marriage. In the north of Ireland, um, at the last political vote, the majority said that they would legalise it, but it was blocked because of the way we do politics here, <laughs> which means that nothing gets done, actually, on any issue, full stop. But there's another question for another day. But the interaction between Christian people... And the law of the land uh, and, and same-sex marriage, is it, is it something that Christian people should seek to block, want to not see happen, or is it something that we should be allowing for people um, who, you know, to exercise their right as adults um, to do? And some people would say to exercise their right uh, under God to exercise their free will. Go on, Australia. Gee, that's a simple question, isn't it? <laughs> um, Anyway, I, I think one of the fundamental things where I'd start with is that everyone's made in God's image. I, I should preface that by saying I simply do not trust human reason, actually. I don't think humans really know who we are. I don't think we know how to think about the world. If I look at Hellenistic culture, I find it appalling. So uh, you need to know that I just don't trust humans' ability to make sense of their lives at all. And that's why I'm so profoundly hope committed to the scriptures because they tell me how to make sense of life. And foundational of that is that everyone is made in God's image. And Sam was trying to make that point. When someone comes into my church, whatever else, they're made in God's image. That's the starting point. So every act of abuse against someone made in God's image is actually an act of high treason against him. And I think that's why the Pharisees end up getting labelled as you're of your father, the devil, because they forgot that in the way they treated people. So you get that story. We talked about it in 2013. We're not about Sabbath keeping. We're about people keeping. And if keeping Sabbath ever gets in the road of keeping people, we're in trouble. Now, Jesus is going to teach us about what peeping, uh, keeping people means. And I'm just going to preface where I'm coming to them. I think for Paul's view of human sexual expression, it's grounded in the fact that our physical bodies are integral to being made in God's image. There's something about human physicality, not just our reason but our physicalness, that has to do with us being made in God's image. That's a stunningly transformational idea in the ancient world. 
that the slave woman's body was part of her being made in God's image and that's why the master was not free to have sex with her. Uh, the woman or person who's disabled is made in God's image so they're not to be bought and forced to dance in front of wealthy guests for their entertainment. You don't do that, right? Young boys are not to be traded for fields in order to be playthings for elite men. Why? Because not just elite men's bodies matter. In the ancient world, that was kind of it, right? Sexual morality in the ancient world is for elite men whose body can I enjoy with impunity? And Paul cuts right across that and says every single person's body is part of their being made in God's image, so they have to be respected. Not just the elite males, everybody's. And I think for him, that's why the, the sexual sins carry a special kind of priority. But Sam's absolutely right. I, I think it's actually almost blasphemous for us to emphasize one and turn a blind eye to the other. And I know that's a strong word, but I feel that strongly about it because I think what it does, before the watching world, it gives, I think, a terribly erroneous view of the character of God and whether people are meant to know him. So it's more, right, more pressing upon us. So with that all together, I want to say democracy only comes about because of Paul. Everybody, everybody actually has value. And so that means in my Western culture, which is profoundly Christian anyway, um, why can't I speak up about affirming that story which actually gave birth to this culture? But I don't want to make it a single issue like that. I want to actually say there's a bigger thing here about the nature of what it means to be human. So when someone asks me about sexuality, my first question back is, well, what does it mean to be a human? How do you deal with that? So I'm happy to have that debate. I'd love to have that in public, not in order to win an argument. People are made in God's image. It's not about clobbering people around the head with arguments. It's actually to try and bring God's life to people and have that discussion. So I voted actually no but only because I have a strong view of what I think it means to be human and I'm not sure this is the best way of expressing people's humanity. But I'd also say that about the way we constantly watch stuff where people are sleeping around and doing all that kind of stuff and you know, we go to movies and it's all hanging out and we sit there as wonderful Christians and we don't. none of us kind of seem to be repulsed by that. That's probably too strong. I think there's a huge issue there somewhere. So... There's got to be, to use your word, consistency, I think, between our view of what it means to be human and how we engage in our culture. Okay. But we're a democracy. We have a voice. But I think the difference should be the way we exercise our voices with grace and compassion, even as we speak about the truth. Right. Got to do that, I think. Great. Rick, stay, stay on your feet there. I'm going to move on into... You know, whenever you, you talk about... Uh, Trusting the scriptures, not trusting reason, but also that we are people with senses and our senses interact with the world around us, culture, history, politics, and so on. So how can we have a pure scriptural story or narrative when we are deeply impacted by the world around us is the vein of one question in this. And the other is actually um, about how you've studied art imagery, you use art imagery, yet you know you will know well uh, uh, from, from your time at Regent Jim Parker talking about not making any false images um, you've advised us not to speculate yet a lot of art is speculation so how do we weave that, you know, stay true to the scriptures but we live in this world and this okay. world is all around us yeah, so two things I'd say um, I think primarily as a historian when I was teaching in China a couple of years ago about this there was a student there doing a PhD. During question time, he said to me, you're not a theologian, are you? 
And I said, no, he said, you're an historian. And I said, yes, that's what I am. Right? And so when I talk about reason, what I'm particularly talking about is first century Hellenistic philosophy. That's not the same as thinking. That's a very particular kind of thinking that says, I look for the stuff that doesn't change and I can build up a knowledge of the world from first principles. Right? So that's what I mean when I talk about reason. I'm talking about that Hellenistic project, right? Uh, I'm not rejecting all of Hellenism. I think some of their arts, you know, interesting and beautiful and, you know, the way they do their columns is great. I just reject that you start from first principles and you can understand what it means to be human and know what the world is about. And I reject it because I see not only what it resulted in, I would hate to live in the first century. Horrible, horrible place to live. But I also think it's terribly flawed, flawed philosophically. So you just need to know that when I'm speaking of reason, I'm not talking about not thinking. Uh, sometimes we blur that together. You've got to keep thinking context. Everything's about historical and cultural context. Paul's an amazing thinker. I think the guy's a genius. Uh, I think Jesus is too, actually. Anyone can write an 800-page book that no one can understand. <laughs> but you come up with a one-liner in the heat of the moment that lasts for 2,000 years. That's true genius. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That's genius, right? So there is a Christian way to think and to think intently and carefully, but we don't do the reason Hellenistic thing. We start with what God gives us, right? So that would be the first thing I'd say. Um, is art speculation not in the Hellenistic sense? Art's a kind of an act of interpretation. It's looking at something and seeing what strikes you. And the fact is, I'm doing this all the time. Right? So I look at your face, and your face has myriads of features to it. Right? It really does. And I'm picking up on just a few. That's what facial recognition is about. And then I interpret some. We, we all do that. You can't be human without interpreting. So I actually wouldn't accept the premise that art is speculative. It may be, but it doesn't have to be. It can be a way of interpreting, which is something every human being is. You can't live without interpreting. There is no such thing as a non-interpreted human existence. You're always doing that. And I think art can help us with that. And, you know, the, the poets write in, um, uh, the prophets write in poetry. Got that? All those prophets, it's poetry. When was the last time you heard a poem as a sermon? Batter my heart, three-person God. You as yet but knock, breathe, shine and seek to men that I might rise and stand or throw me and bend, right? When did you last hear a sermon like that? So I know there's absolute tons of room for artistic stuff, I think, but there's a difference between speculation and interpretation. Is right. that kind of helping? Yes, thank Am you I very much. Am I done now? Can no, I sit no, down? No, you can sit down. Yeah, you can sit down. You can sit down. Um, I love the uh, anyone can write a book that's 800 words long and no one can understand it, but it takes genius to come up with a one-liner you can remember. Man's a genius. Um, so questions for uh, of encouragement um, to leave. I'm going to throw out uh, three, and you pick the one or all three that you want to go for. So... Uh, are there upcoming books, theologians, that people should be taking note of and reading? Um, what are the top two or three qualities uh, a church should look for in a pastor? The question says in Northern Ireland in 2018, but um, you know maybe other churches need pastors too. So what books should we read? What qualities should we be looking for in a leader? And what are your hopes and aspirations for heaven? So we've got like it's a final answer from each of you. Uh, give us a word of encouragement to leave and you pick the one that you want to answer. Well, I'll, I'll go first then. Um, 
In terms of the what should a church look for, the fact that it's in Northern Ireland and in 2018 is irrelevant. I think one or two things that would be nice, preferably given that context, but, but really that, that doesn't make any difference. Um, the, the, the calendar year doesn't change truth, it doesn't change godliness, doesn't change the urgency of the gospel. And uh, I'm going to copy Paul because he knows more about this than I do. <laughs> and his answer in, in 1 Timothy 3 is, is proven gifting and proven character. And again, one of the things we possibly subconsciously do is, is filter uh, what gifting we think matters the most and what aspects of character we think matters the most. And it strikes me that some of the things Paul says here are are quite countercultural with what he does say and what he doesn't say. Paul says, able to teach. We think, no, we need someone who's a great CEO, who's going to be a visionary leader, who's going to be a fine administrator, who's going to manage the buildings, pro you know, able to teach, please. That means they, they have something to teach that they've understood in their own head and an ability to communicate that to others. That's a non-negotiable. Whatever else they're good at, if they can't do that, they will not be an effective pastor. Um, and there are other aspects of the, of the character that it, it seems to me that I've never heard of actually being scrutinized in, a, in an interview process. Um, hospitable. I've seen a lot of people applying for, for jobs in church leadership. I don't know of anyone who's ever been... Whether their, where their hospitality has been examined. That's important enough for Paul to stipulate as being essential. Because actually, hospitality in Scripture is something deeply, deeply significant. It's not entertaining. It is actually welcoming in the outsider and, and opening up our lives and our hearts to them. So there are things there. So do, do ponder... <coughs> 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 as well, and actually meditate deeply on each of the things Paul is saying and think, which of these are our blind spots? Which of these do we tend to overlook? And what are we trying to add to this list that Paul didn't see fit to mention? Thanks, Sam. We have, a, some of us in Northern Ireland, have a saying about the gift of hospitality, and the definition of it is this, the gift of hospitality is making people feel at home when you wish they were. <laughs> um, have you that in England? I'm sure you've felt like that at times, Sam. Don't answer that publicly. <laughs> um, I, if I could answer two or three qualities, totally, totally endorse what uh, Sam uh, has just said. In fact, both of us reached for the first and second Timothy and Titus when uh, Barry told us that was the question that was coming up next. But just a couple of things I think are couple, some qualities that are absolutely essential, biblical and needed in anywhere in the world, not least in Ireland. Um, I heard a leader defined as someone who's a magnet in their heart and a compass in their head. And if you like, that's Jesus the friend of sinners. He loved people and they knew it. Uh, and yet he had a sense of direction. He knew exactly what he was here to do. And he did it. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He knew exactly what he had to do and he did it. 
And I think <coughs> we need that clarity in leaders in the church today. They're relational and they're directional, uh, but pursuing the purposes of God for his people. They're about we, not about me. They're team players. We're the body of Christ. We all have a part to play. And some brilliant words that I came across recently, I think, are so important for church leadership. Uh, and this came from the business world, actually. Um, train people well enough so that they're ready to leave. Treat people well enough so that they don't want to leave. And again, Jesus did that. Are we about making disciples? Because if the church is about anything here on earth, it's about making disciples just as Jesus uh, told us to. And finally in this one, for me, something that has been pivotal for decades has been First Timothy. Uh, chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul says to Timothy, the young leader, watch your life and your doctrine closely. So character and the biblical doctrine, the biblical message, what we believe, what we teach, absolutely vital. But you can't divorce the two. They have to go hand in hand in a beautiful marriage. And if you're married, watch your life means watch your wife too. Nobody else's. Um what I'm looking forward, forward to in heaven is I'm looking forward to finding out actually what it's all going to be about, to be honest. To me, what I know about heaven that means more to me than anything else is that we're going to be in the presence of Christ in a way we aren't at the moment. And I am just excited about that. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the famous Christian leader in the States, Rick Warren, uh, he and his wife Kay went through a horrendous experience a few years ago when their youngest son, or their son, only son, Matthew, at 27 years old, committed suicide. And I heard Rick Warren being interviewed and he said, you know, I sometimes imagine uh, Matthew speaking to me from heaven. And this, is, this was a year after his death when Rick had said there hadn't been a day in a year he hadn't cried over his son Matthew. And he said, I sometimes imagine Matthew is speaking to me from heaven and he says, Dad, you got it wrong. And I say, son, what do you mean I got it wrong? Well, he says, Dad, you told me heaven was going to be great. It's far greater than you said it would be. <laughs> and I like that because I really believe that is what heaven will be. So I'm looking forward to that. Good stuff, Rick. Do you want to bring us in the land, aerospace oh. engineer? <laughs> I think he means space cadet. <laughs> um, you know me well. I do. Well, you know, what can one add? I, I just had a little footnote. If you're interviewing someone who's married, make sure the spouse comes along, ask the applicant the question, but look into the face of the spouse for the answer. <laughs> because if the spouse is not flourishing and if they're not shining, you want to keep away from that person with a barge pole. Don't go near them, right? Uh, second thing would be, you know, I, I love this creation. It, there's so much beauty in this world. I can't believe it. It's just sometimes intoxicating. I think we just take it for granted. You do know, don't you, the miracle, to use that word, and I know I shouldn't, uh, is the creation. So um, I just, I can hardly wait to see this creation when it's freed from its bondage to decay. And all of this stuff actually just flourishes in the light of the glory of God's life-giving presence. And I'm just imagining coffee and cheese and bread like I've never had before. And uh, fruit juice, right, of, of various ages, right, and all that kind of wonderful stuff. So, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Sure Amen. and certain hope of the life of the world to come. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Rick.
Thank you. And uh, and I really want to thank Fanta for blowing my cover because all week I've been telling Sam and Rick I hope they really feel at home. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, Rick, Fanta, Sam, thank you for your, your answers, your honesty, folks. We've been overwhelmed with questions. I said we weren't going to reach them all. Um, you can... Go to other seminars and get the recordings from the various things at New Horizon. To those of you who need to go and get your kids, please do. Please thank the leaders when you're doing that. They've been doing an absolutely amazing job. God bless you. We hope we see you later on tonight, tomorrow. Uh, if not, if you're rushing on for any reason, I hope that this has been good for you. And God bless you this year. Thank you.